Okay, so I'd like to welcome to the show today a professor of biological anthropology at Montana Tech who received a PhD in anthropology from the Ohio State University in 2009, specializing in human evolutionary anatomy, archaeology and biomedicine. Also someone who has contributed significantly in recent years to the UFO field authoring the books Identified Flying Objects and most recently The Extra Tempestrial Model. So welcome everybody, Dr. Michael P. Masters. How are you today, mate? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. So how, how have you been getting on? You recovered from the excesses of the uh, festive season. How's 20, 2023 no, kicking off not for you at so all. far? I'm still working on the recovery process. <laughs> yeah. We We went right up to the last minute. Uh, my birthday was a couple of days ago, so we went to a hot springs and um, went skiing for the day. And yeah, no, it was, it was a fun holiday though. What about you? Good times? Yeah, man, just a little bit too much good food and a nice, nice Scotch whiskey. So yes. I've, I've been trying to burn off a few extra calories. Been running today, <laughs> getting yeah, back into same. the swing. I'm doing that two week uh, abstinence from. From booze and coffee and just cutting everything out so it's mm. good to do that from time to time definitely man uh, yeah i've not quite pulled up the courage to cut out the coffee yet i think that's the most difficult one for me it's hard i'm in day two and it's killing me <laughs> yeah so um when i speak to my like non-UFO friends, I often like to slip in a little bit of UFO stuff now and again just to see what people's reactions are. And you often tend to find that people are quite surprised at the complexity of the different hypotheses to explain the UFO mystery. Mm. I think one that really seems to get people's attention is this idea that they might be, you know, humans from the future. Obviously, this is an area that you've kind of specialized in. So could you summarize your concept of the extratempestrial model for the for the listeners, please? Yeah, and I've, I've found the same thing. I think uh, it's just sort of intuitive in the sense that uh, we are human, so we've got that in common to start with if they happen to be us as well. And we can see how our technology has progressed throughout the ages, so it's not that much of a jump to think that we could at some point travel back in time and visit our own past it's something people have been exposed to in various forms of media throughout decades so yeah i think you know it, it makes a lot of sense just innately but then if you focus on the specifics of the behaviors and the form of these alleged beings seen in association with ufos it, it makes even more sense because you start to see what 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 we refer to as unique derived characteristics representative of the hominin lineage. And first and foremost, you have the fact that they're almost always, in fact, I haven't found a single instance that speaks otherwise, uh, bipedal, uh, meaning they walk around on two legs, which is the characteristic that defines the hominin lineage. So even beyond their bipedalism, which you would expect to be rare on Earth-like exoplanets because the vast majority, uh, based on data from a number of different sources that I've calculated, it's between 2.2 and about 3.5% 
are the same size as or larger than Earth. So if that's the case, and bipedalism is so rare here, we'd expect it to be even more rare on other planets outside our solar system that may be in the habitable zone of their own star. But, I mean, even beyond that, you've got the the characteristics of having bilateral symmetry, two gut openings, eyes, nose, mouth in the same position. But then if you look at the, the morphological distribution of those traits, the, the larger eyes, the smaller face, that's the most dominant cranial facial characteristic that defines the last six to eight million years of hominin evolution. So that, that would indicate that they are a more advanced form or a more advanced grade of our own uh, phylogenetic lineage, speaking cladistically, to use a lot of esoteric jargon all of a sudden. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but the the bottom line is that they have the same traits and the same proportions as we do, but a uh, more derived form, meaning traits that would seem to indicate that they come from a more advanced point in a revolutionary future. And again, not just their physiology, but also their technology and culture. Yeah, it's, it's it's definitely one that that really grabs people's attention. I did an episode about the the time traveler kind of like hypothesis quite some time ago, and I think it's one of the most downloaded episodes that I've ever done. Um, I don't know if you'll remember. I reached out to you at the time for a for a quote as to how far advanced the greys may actually uh, be from where we oh, are yeah. now. Yeah, I remember that. What did I answer that? Because there was a period of time when I wasn't giving an answer to that question. I think you said around about 10,000 uh, years, but I think that's something I was going to ask you, actually. Is that still sort of a, a vague um, you know, idea of what you still think? Has that changed? Yeah. I, how long ago was that? I'm, I'm guessing probably about a year and a half, two years ago, maybe. Probably about a year and a half, yeah. It was, it was quite early on in the, when I, from when I started the podcast, so yeah, about a year and a half. Yeah, and that was probably around the time that I was kind of getting into the weeds of this most recent book, um, The Extra Tempestra Model, uh, which you mentioned in the intro. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's hard. It's hard, and I think I probably gave this um, qualifier too when I, I mentioned that time is because you do have, and it's the same problem we have with dating things just based on morphology and looking you know, and, and the paleoanthropological record is you have sex variation, age variation, uh, regional variation, and temporal variation. So to be able to just pick one of those and say, well, this characterizes all of these other forms is difficult. And that still rings true. Um, I think 10,000 is a, a somewhat conservative estimate, <clears throat> but I, I don't know. And in, in researching this last book, I think if we're talking about the tall greys, which I think are a very distant point in our evolutionary future, they're so different that they're often confused with praying mantises, despite not having any of the same postcranial morphology as a praying mantis. But those, the big eyes and the absolutely tiny face with a pointy chin, um, I think that's probably upwards of tens of thousands, maybe 40, 50, even 60,000 years. But as far as the majority of the short greys, which are seen most commonly after human uh, in as far as what people report seeing based on the Dr. Edgar Mitchell Free study that surveyed about 4,000, upwards of 5,000 now contactees and abductees, human is the most commonly described. And I've seen that over and over in researching this most recent book is that 
most of the time people see us. And a mistake I made in researching the first book, Identified Flying Objects, is that I was just solely focused on this quintessential gray alien form, which is what started my journey down this path, seeing Whitley Strieber's book as a, a young child. So I kind of overlooked a lot of the cases, the majority of cases, which describe humans. So I, I kind of had to walk that back a little bit because I think as far as when we'll start doing this, it's going to be much sooner than I previously thought. They, they look like us, they speak vocally, haven't reached that necessarily telepathic uh, takeover of the brain yet. But I think in the distant future, the, the ones that are sort of more just the, the huge eyes that just mesmerize your brain and take over your consciousness, I think that's probably upwards of 40 or 50,000 years. Yeah. And do you think that that kind of evolutionary path is is something that's possibly going to be accelerated by like a, a, a you know a catastrophic climate change event for example or is it just a natural path we're on if things stay the same well it's definitely a natural path we're on uh i do think it could be accelerated and i you know it might be some sort of catastrophe some cataclysm that's certainly a possibility um any any sort of Rapid environmental change forces organisms to adapt more rapidly to, to keep up with it. And we've buffered ourselves from the natural environment to a large extent. We don't evolve through strict uh, natural selection means like we had throughout the long history of our past. So, But if we were subjected to that again and the environment changed drastically, it would undoubtedly further that acceleration. But over the last 800,000 years, we've seen a rapid acceleration in the increase in cranial capacity and then that trade-off with the mid and lower facial anatomy that I mentioned earlier. And another thing I overlooked in my first book is the role that genetic modification is likely to play. And that may accelerate things farther if we start to tinker with our genome. And I, I make a number of cases in my most recent book why we might start doing that uh, beyond the, the stereotypical designer baby thing, just curing diseases or trying to live longer. That's one of the main drivers of a lot of research is, is senescence. We want to try to delay or suspend senescence so that we can live forever for whatever reason. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons to assume it may accelerate farther, uh, whether it's because of something that happens uh, with regard to our environment, uh, that that's just speculation at that point. But there are indications from our distant and more recent past that we are accelerating our evolution. Yeah, and and you mentioned uh, your your book there, the extra tempestral model. Um, I really like the book, by the way, and I think it's a really good resource for people who are interested in this kind of thing. Oh, and one of the things I'll, I really like is that you sort of spend a bit of time at the beginning of the book to outline the extra tempestual model and then go into a, quite a number of, of case studies, which you suggest kind of point towards time traveling uh, humans. And it is kind of, yeah. I mean, I, I wanted them to stand alone. Um, I wanted people to be able to read the second one without reading the first one. So you're right. I did kind of outline the theory and recap it, but I didn't necessarily pick individual cases because they back up this theory. Uh, certainly there's ones that are in there that you don't see a lot of other places because they talk more about time travel, but, but the Betty and Barney Hill case is in there too. And, and that's, you know, for a long time has been the bastion of the extraterrestrial hypothesis. So, so yeah, I definitely pulled some that, uh, 
that lean that way or, or should be examined because they lean that way that are sometimes overlooked. But, but yeah, I think the overall idea was to highlight this time travel model, but also to show how other models might apply in different cases as well. Mm. Is there a particular case that you think stands out that, that does point towards the extra tempestrial model being particularly convincing? Well, I mean, uh, one that people maybe don't know as well as the Linda Jones case, um, where she had a, a number of interactions throughout her life. Uh, she had a brain that was more amenable to making her forget, which is another pattern that emerged that a lot of people have very different reactions to whatever method they use. Uh, it, it must be some sort of consciousness aspect of, of our reality is all I can come up with. But she was one that, that just didn't remember anything. And then a certain part of her life, she did. Uh, another one was Jerry who was actually told that they were future humans. Uh, I think that was chapter 13, maybe in the book, but Linda Jones saw this manipulation of, of space time around her, this warpage of time that, that, you would expect an association with a, a machine that's capable of doing that. Another one is the Corporal Armando Valdez case where he disappeared in the frame of reference of his men for 15 minutes, but he was gone for five days based on his body hair growth and what his watch said. Um, but then also, of course, the Jim Penniston case, which more people are familiar with from the Rendlesham Forest landing in 1980. And uh, that was another one where he he claims he was told through binary code uh, that they were from the future, I think 8,000 years specifically. I don't know if that's 8,000 years from 1980 or just 8,000 CE. Uh, if they are us, they would likely use a lot of the same ways of classifying time. Um, but, but yeah, there are others that, you know, we have to take with a grain of salt that, that might indicate that they are from outer space. People are also told that, they come from a certain star. And, and something that was pointed out to me by my editor, which I haven't talked a lot, mostly because I forgot about his point, even though it was a very good one, is that it could be a situation where in the distant future, we go off and live on different planets and, and come back from them if traveling through space is as easy as traveling through time. And it may be, you know, he, I think the example he gave is that his ancestors are from Germany. But he doesn't say he's German because he lives in Canada. He says he's Canadian. So it could be that they say they're from Orion or Zeta Reticuli or whatever because it's been so long since they lived on Earth that even if they are humans from the distant future, they're traveling both through space and time, they may just say whatever their point of origin is at that time as opposed to, well, our ancestors from Earth and then they lived on Mars for a while and then they moved to this star system. So... You know, that's something to keep in mind, too, in the context of, of when other beings say they're from different planets and different solar systems. Because, and another point I make in the book, is that if they are from these different places, you know, it's, it's so hard to imagine that there would be another being that looks and acts so much like us on one other planet. But if there's four or five different planets, the likelihood is absolutely zero that we would have all of these shared derived characteristics and happen to have... Uh, these separate evolutionary trajectories on these different planets. So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of things to take into account, but I, I think that's something to consider as a potential reason for why they occasionally say they are from a distant planet. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought that I've not really considered too much before, that they may actually be 
kind of a, a fusion of two different hypotheses. They're actually coming from, you know, an extraterrestrial origin in the future. So you kind of got the best of both worlds there, haven't you? But yeah, it's, uh, it captures a little bit of both. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting as well. I was talking to um, Dr. Gary Nolan actually uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying something quite similar about the if you look at the the abundance of different forms life has taken on Earth, you know, a lot of it is not bipedal hominids, is it? You know, things like octopuses and all the bizarre insects and things like that, you know. So yeah. it does, I suppose, make it make it seem a lot less likely that, you know, something in human form would spring up somewhere else in the universe. Absolutely. And to take that further, we are the only upright walking mammal habitually upright walking mammal. You have birds that do it, obviously, because they've optioned their their upper limbs for something else. But, you know, you have squirrels that sit up. Um, you'll have a lot of animals that, that raise up, but we're the only ones that walk habitually bipedally. So it is extremely rare on this planet. Yeah. I, so I get that impression fr from your work and hearing your interviews that you, th you think that it's probably you know, overwhelmingly more likely that we're dealing with future humans for, for that reason, because it's so much more likely that we would develop time travel at some point in our future than another similar body type would evolve independently somewhere out there in the universe. Right. Well, I mean, technology works the same way. It's, it's descent with modification. There's always a foundation on which the next generation adds to the complexity of the culture that came before. So um, you, you see that descent with modification in the machinery that we use and the various things that we do as a species. And I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that too, that it's not just our physical form, but also our technological capabilities. And I cite a, a few different studies that show that if there's nothing in the laws of physics that prohibits it, we're likely to be able to do it. And these studies that looked at all these different, it's a, a literature review is what we call it, where they looked at all of these other studies about whether or not uh, time travel would be possible and they found that there's nothing that prohibits it and all of these different models the the different ways of perceiving it based on others research throughout the last 100 years pretty much since uh einstein's 1915 paper so yeah i think it's an inevitability and i don't think it's actually going to be as complicated as people think um from from everything i've seen it's more about you know, the same way we travel through space, but we just enter a separate point in both space and time. A lot of people make the mistake of separating those, but they're, they're one entity. Um, and once we start perceiving it that way and understand it in the context of the block universe, you don't have all of the problems that are often imposed on the idea that are stumbling blocks, even for academics. I, I, God, I've heard so many, I've been on panels before where it just evolves into <laughs> a dispute about the legitimacy of backward time travel. And I think, um, I think a lot of that will get hashed out pretty soon, to be honest. I don't think it's going to be too long before we're talking about this, not just as a real possibility, but something that is on the horizon. Yeah. C could you um, sort of summarize the concept of the block universe and why that kind of, you know, gets around some of these kind of paradoxes and things that people have sometimes mentioned. Yeah, it's an important thing to conceptualize. Um, and it is the dominant model among physicists and philosophers and, and psychologists and really anyone who studies time. Uh, and especially once you get into the way in which 
time travel works, not just with regard to physical uh, time travel, but cognitive time travel, time loops, precognition, remote viewing, all of these different forms of time travel that exist with our consciousness, DMT trips, psychedelic trips. So in, in viewing uh, the way time works in the context of the reality of the universe, the block universe postulates that from the very beginning of time in our universe, the Big Bang, essentially, to the very end of it, when the last matter gets sucked into a black hole and then gets uh, circled back to that singularity that starts the, the Big Bang, as it's been proposed and is likely the case, um, that time between the beginning and the end exists as a massive four-dimensional block of all moments that have ever and will ever exist. And it's easy for us to conceptualize this in reverse. When we're looking back at the past, we can say, well, all of these things led up to these moments that led up to this moment, so we can conceptualize that. But a lot of people suck at turning that around and looking to the future as somebody else's past. Somebody else is already looking back on these moments that are in your future and seeing them as concrete events. But we like to pretend we have the ability to change all of these things that are already structured in this way that exists as somebody else's past. That's not the case. That's more of a philosophical uh, roadblock than anything. But if we can understand all of these moments as being structured in time, anything that you do to traverse these points in space-time and to visit these points in space-time doesn't cause a change. It's a part of those moments. It's structured that way. So you go back to the past, you interact with people, you do things, you're just doing what you had already done in those moments, and any effect, any change, using air quotes now, has already manifested itself before you left to go do it, as linear time is viewed. So it, we need to kind of break away from this idea of time as being from the past to the future and that cause comes from a past event and a future effect. It can happen the other way around too, but that effect is already in the past. If in fact you do go back and make that, uh, that cause, there's an effect that's already been manifested before you go back to do it. If you view it in linear time. So it's really just a matter of reconceptualizing. It's also called landscape time. A good way of thinking of it is, is looking as a sheet of paper. It's hard for us, us to imagine a massive four-dimensional block of all moments in space-time. But if you think about a piece of paper that has those moments in space and time, and you're jumping from one point on the page to another point, those are linked together. They're just There's a bridge that's that forms between them, um, but you're not changing anything. You're just visiting those places in space-time in the same way you visit different places uh, around the Earth on vacation and specific points in time. Um, so I think the, the hang-up is, is people think about it in the context of the grandfather paradox, which only exists if there is change. It only exists if you can change things, and that's more of a many-worlds interpretation conundrum that doesn't exist in the block universe. And then consistency paradoxes, bootstrap paradoxes, the idea that something can have no creator because it is sent backward in time, whether it be information or craft. I talk about the Roswell crash as a potential example of this, uh, where if it came from the future and we reverse engineered it in the past, nobody created it. It was gifted to the people in the past. The people from the future didn't create it because it was a result of the thing that they back-engineered that came from the future. There's nothing paradoxical about that. We should stop calling it the bootstrap paradox because it's not paradoxical. It just confuses us because we think of time as linear.
Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty interesting to hear you kind of lay it out like that. I'm pretty pretty mind blowing as well. I think I'll have to, you know, re-listen to this and and try and digest it over the coming week. <laughs> but, there's, but, I mean, there's a lot of good books out there too, and a lot of good research by philosophers and physicists, and I uh, I cite a few of them in in both of my books. So I think. Um, yeah, if people are interested in learning more, I mean, I, I'm summarizing other people's work, so it's always better to go back to the original source. Yeah. So if the um, you know the, the the concept of like the Mandela effect and things like that, you know, the grandfather paradox and whatnot wouldn't necessarily apply. Um, no, the Mandela effect doesn't. That's more of a many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics thing. That's more of a multiverse thing where you would have a a, a complete shift in reality is a result of a change and based on how often we're seeing these ufos and, and it's thought that you would have quantum decoherence just by entering the past that you would you would have a, a split in the timeline simply by entering the past based on how often these ufos are seen if they are from the future and we are in a multiverse then we'd expect all of these different branches to be taking place and all of this reshuffling of our mindscape and and whether or not we thought Cheerios had an extra O or whatever the hell it is people think about the Mandela effect. But in the block universe, you can forget all of that. It's the simplest explanation. It's Occam's razor, uh, and we don't have to worry about that stuff because it's not reality. It's um, it's something we should conceptualize. It's something we should think about and talk about. I, I wrote a lot about it in my last book because it kept coming up. But if we adhere to the block universe model, that's just gibberish. And, and I'd also like to point out that there is no evidence that the multiverse exists. There's absolutely zero evidence that, there, that we live in a multiverse. And until there is some, I'm not going to pay any attention to it, at least not seriously. I'll write about it. I'll talk about this model in the context of it. But I'm not going to worry about whatever serial brand had extra letters in it or not. Yeah, you kind of think that, like you say, with the frequency of these things, especially over the last kind of hundred years or so, that it'd be descending into chaos pretty quickly, wouldn't it? If, if you know, that kind of those effects were real, you know, we'd be in a bit of a mess by this well, point. Of well, here's another thing to think about. If, if they were coming back in time and things were changing, you'd expect them to constantly be coming back to fix things that went wrong because they changed something the last time that caused an effect they weren't anticipating, and now they're coming back to fix that. It would be this constant coming back to fix things that they screwed up because they tried to fix something else. And I I just don't think we're seeing that. It would be a much more, more overt interaction where they're doing big things to fix things. But thus far, it's just, it's been observation and study and research, and they can do these things without launching us into another timeline. Um, but the flip side of that coin is they're also not trying to fix things because they launched us into another timeline. So, I, yeah, I, I, I think, again, we should definitely consider this model uh, in the context of other forms of reality or other uh, realms of existence, but... I, I, I really do think it's, it's the simplest explanation that prevails. It's us from the future coming back in the same timeline in a block universe model. Mm. 
do you think it's possible that we could be dealing with like multiple things? Like we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier, but like extraterrestrial visitation as well as future humans. Like for example, some experiences talk about mantids, which you mentioned earlier, or rep- reptilian type beings and things like that, which you could perhaps say doesn't fit with the the future human visitation concept. But it seemed like earlier you were sort of suggesting that perhaps people are. Um, like misidentifying some of these very, um, you know, very far-flung future humans as being mantids. Is, is that kind of what you were getting out there? It was, yeah. I think I, I refer to it as temporal ancestry, where in the same way that we can look at our own ancestry throughout space and time, we have, you know, these different grades of hominin, the Australopithecines, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo rudolfensis, Homo naledium, all of these different forms. Um, and we know that we are the result of a line that flows through those. There's branches that came off and there's evolutionary dead ends, but there is clearly one line that led to us. So in the same way that we can look back at people a hundred years ago, they look a little bit different than us, but almost identical. You go back 200,000 years ago, we start to see some marked differences in our cranial facial form, not to mention our technology. Uh, you go back to Homo erectus, Homo naledi, we have some very stark differences in the way we would see them and they would see us. And, and we can kind of launch that forward where if there is this an acceleration and 50,000 years is maybe equivalent to, you know, 200,000 years. If we were to visit uh, Homo erectus on the island of Java where they existed back then, we we would be very alien to them if you had somebody you know, with a bald head of East Asian descent, they're going to describe something almost identical to what's described in a lot of these UFO encounters. So I think that temporal aspect of our ancestry is important. But I definitely think there could be some element of our, um, of, of interplanetary travel too. There's certainly some consciousness aspect that's going on. And I also think we can conceptualize the cryptids in the context of this. If you had a future human race go back in time, and and I think about this all the time, I, I only recently made this potential connection to the cryptid phenomenon, but if you had a future human race that went back in time and took their technology, made a city uh, at a time when people didn't live in a certain region of the world, you could just have all of the luxury of this beautiful untouched wilderness and all of these exotic animals around you, but not have to worry about any effect on people because there weren't enough people at that time. You know, maybe, maybe that's what Atlantis was, is there was um, a beautiful future human civilization in the past that they eventually had to destroy themselves because we were getting to the point where we would start to be like, hey, you, you seem different than us. Why are you flying around in these magical craft and uh, and we'd start coming across them with our, our ships as we uh, started sailing around the planet beginning about 70,000 years ago. So I, in, in my opinion, that's the only way you could have an advanced civilization that came before us now is if it was a future human civilization. Because you can't have complex before simple. Everything goes from simple to complex. Like I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, everything is built on what came before in the context of compounding cultural evolution. So... With that in mind, in linear time, that is the case. However, because you can, if you have backward time travel, 
have more complex before simple because it came after simple in the future, you can sort of tie those things together. And if some of the people stayed if through these hybridization programs or whatever, if some of the people stayed, they could have been living amongst us ever since, just spreading out from whatever that central location that they had as a, a future human living in the past civilization. It's, you know, it gets a little more speculative, of course, but who knows what they're going to do in the future. And if there is a phenomenon that's happening on Earth now with more highly intelligent beings who have a more developed consciousness where they can communicate telepathically, which I think is the case, um, maybe they've they've been here all along or in it, just a, a different group. John, John Ramirez said something really similar to that in an interview with uh, Martin Willis a couple weeks ago. And uh, it was something I'd already kind of been thinking about. But when he said that, I was like, damn, you know, that it just makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, and I think they, they, why couldn't they make humans look like the humans of any particular time period if they had access to genes from the past? They could average out those physical characteristics from their big-headed gray shape to a big, hairy Neanderthal shape and, and, and make themselves a modern human. Mm. Yeah, that's... that's um... I mean that that that's just such an interesting idea. The concept of future humans actually traveling to the past to be able to sort of enjoy the untouched wilderness of of uh, you know how, what, however many years ago it would be in the past. I never really thought of that, but that's a really interesting idea. And if there is a cataclysm, especially if if we ruin the Earth, I mean we're clearly already doing it. But if there's something even worse than what we're doing. Uh, going back to the the virgin soil of the past, uh, it wouldn't be hard to talk people into that. I don't think. Mm. Yeah, in in terms of um, uh, we mentioned earlier about you know like being able to modify genes and and edit you know genes and and make sort of a you know a customized version of the self. You know, one one thing I've often thought about with the the greys is is why would they be like such scrawny figures you know what i mean you would think if you had the option to kind of make yourself any any body to live in you'd be sort of jacked you know <laughs> really strong <laughs> do you think it's well, just that they've got such good technology that they don't need to have muscular strength in that way or well some of them are the ones that travis walton encountered after he woke up in the room with the grays that were trying to save him from accidentally almost killing him with that electrode magnetic discharge the one the guy that actually came and got him from the control room was a big strapping handsome blonde man and he was taken to a room with a equally attractive woman and another guy that he said looked almost identical to that other guy uh, which again you would expect in these hybridization programs if they did find a really nice combination of genes and why not make more of those? We we try to make the best version of models and, and all kinds of different devices that we construct. So if they stumbled on one, yeah, why not? But um, there, there could also be some AI aspect to it that we're not necessarily just seeing physical human beings, but maybe robots made in, in our likeness, which we're already doing now, trying to find the, the perfect human form uh the oddly the sex industry is a huge driver of that for obvious reasons but a, a human that is a robot that looks like and talks like a real a real human could be some hybridization i've heard that a lot that there's some sort of ai bio interlink that happens the ships themselves have even been argued 
to be something like that. I, obviously, nobody knows. I certainly don't know. Um, but yeah, as far as the physical form, I think even beyond the temporal ancestry that I was describing earlier, once you introduce artificial intelligence to the equation and things that we make, uh, you're going to expect to have a lot of variation. But the, the atrophying of our physical form, I mean, <laughs> you, you look across the world and, and there's fat people, there's skinny people. But in general, I think the average human is definitely much less stocky than we had been throughout the past. Um, you could find, you know, bodybuilders and, and really, really fat people and really, really skinny people anywhere. But um, if, if we look at the, the bone morphology of, say, Homo erectus, one of the best representations we have is a fossil uh, K&M WT15000, also known as uh, Nerikatome boy. It was found in West Turkana. And it, it, it's a big, stocky dude, and it was only 11 years old. It's thought that once it reached maturity, it was going to be 6'4", and probably upwards of 220 pounds, just based on its bone morphology. Um, so yeah, and the size is hard because there's a lot of diachronic change. There's a lot of up and down based on the environment. But I think, you know, if we continue to outsource manual labor to the robots, that's going to take away a lot of the need to maintain a, a strong morphology. Mm. So how, how do you think like uh, the idea of panspermia sort of comes into this? Like if, if we were, which is a big if, but if we were seeded by some kind of long, long dead non-human intelligence, then there could have been many others worlds that were also seeded, and you know, they they potentially could have been bipedal hominids also. And what if they just evolved quicker than us and and came to visit outside of a time traveling kind of thing? Yeah, it's definitely a possibility. Um, but again, if you're talking about seeding. Uh, seeding is something that would have taken place on this planet 3.7 billion years ago. And if that seeding took place at the same time on other planets, we're talking about 3.7 billion years of evolution again. So to get upright walking humans on each of those planets, uh, again, in that amount of time seems completely improbable. If we're talking about a seeding that would take place in say a thousand years and then you have the evolution from simple prokaryotes to complex organisms like ourselves that might be more realistic but uh, if all other variables were the same the distance from their sun uh, the coding structure the atmosphere gravity but it, i just don't think you would ever find two environments that were exactly the same and then when you're talking about that amount of time it, it just seems so unlikely that you would have the same form evolve uh in both or multiple places mm. so when it comes to like um disclosure you know this concept of the, the governments of the world sort of admitting what they know about ufos uh, a key element of this which would probably be down the track in terms of the timeline of what they would disclose but a key element would be what kind if any communications the others may have actually had with the military or the you know governments of the world to to explain their activity and intentions have you heard anything about extra tempestual communications with the military or the government um with the military or the government direct communications between them and military members mm. is, is that what you're asking yeah that kind of thing 
Um, no, no, I have not heard direct or seen direct evidence of direct communication between them and any government entity. Yeah, it's, it's it kind of opens up like an interesting question of like if they were going to try to communicate with us, would they even do it through a government or would it be direct to the people? And I suppose it depends on their actual motivations for visiting us in the first place and what, what they would be aiming to achieve by communicating any kind of a message. Yeah, I think they would have to communicate if, uh, say, as a purely hypothetical, you accidentally crashed one of your ships into the desert of New Mexico in 1947, which was near the time that we acquired the most destructive weapon ever imaginable that could take out vast swaths of life on this planet and taint said planet for you in the future, you might expect there to be some conversations had. Yeah. Hypothetically think, speaking, of course. Yeah. Do, do you think they would have those communications with like the the wider population or do you think there would be any direct conversations I think there's a lot much? of I think there's a lot of evidence that they have been yeah I mean how ubiquitous is this warning about missiles and weapons and, and cataclysm and population loss it's it's one of the most recurring themes across UFO encounters it's something John Mack but really one of the things that intrigued him most about the phenomenon and one of the things he writes about uh, a lot in his abduction book um, is is the take care of the earth thing. Take care of the earth, um, and and it's so there's so much focus on on war, on nuclear weapons specifically, on nuclear war, Armageddon, Holocaust. Um, yeah, I I think that seed is being planted and has been planted for decades in the minds of people on this planet. Um, that we can see, that's documentable. The people that they're interacting with at high levels of government or possibly tangential to government, um, that, that's just speculation at that point, unless you're one of those few people that must be under the tightest clearance imaginable. I mean, I, I'm certainly not privy to those conversations, but there's no doubt in my mind that they've been happening for 70 plus years. Yeah, so what do you think the the motivations of a future human visitation could actually be? Because we've we've talked about like the the concepts of the block universe and how you couldn't really go back and change something which would then, you know, change a, an outcome in the future or whatever, you know. But there's a lot of discussion about trying to avoid a cataclysm or, you know, doing things differently. What do you reckon the most likely thing is that the actual motivation for coming back would be? Well, I, I think the main motivation throughout history and prehistory has been research. Um, and I, I always acknowledge my own biases in acknowledging that because it's what they appear to be doing and what they appear to have been doing for a long time, uh, not just on humans, but on the ecology of the planet, which in circling back to what we were just talking about with their the ubiquitous focus on on war and nuclear holocaust is why would they care if they weren't us 
that why would they care what we do to ourselves or this planet unless they had a vested interest in the future of that planet and the sanctity of this planet? And, you know, they can't all go back to whatever time Atlantis might have been <laughs> in that theoretical hypothetical again. But, you know, some might be incentivized to do that. Maybe it was the, the rich kings and queens of the future that were so enamored by the Egyptian pharaohs they wanted to create their own little uh, Disneyland in the past. Oh, it could be a tourist thing too. I didn't think about that. Maybe it's like a time Disneyland where people can go back and and look at uh, woolly rhinoceroses and shit. I don't know. Um, but no, I do think that that we have uh, s- that there is some sort of interest in our nukes. There's no doubt about that. Uh, most of the things they do in abduction accounts are clearly research-based. It's exactly what I and my colleagues would do in paleoanthropology if we had access to that technology. Um, but gamete extraction, I think, is another principal motivator for what they're doing. I think uh, that, that's you know that's even more common than what people are telepathically communicated or the images that they're shown in these abductions is that people. Uh, have sperm and egg withdrawn from them. Uh, developing fetuses are reported to be taken from females very commonly. Um, so I think that is one of their their prime motivations for visiting the past as well. Mm. Something that gets brought up a lot when uh, time travelers comes up, particularly on UFO Twitter and whatnot, is is this this date of of two twenty twenty seven. Uh, various people suggesting that there might be something that's going to happen then, and some have even suggested that it, it could be, uh, you know, something that the time travellers have been trying to warn us about. Uh, have you come across that line of thinking? What do you reckon of that? Just recently, yeah, I, I, uh, I mentioned um, that that interview with uh, John Ramirez on Martin Willis's show, his UFO yeah. show, which was right before Christmas. I think it was the 21st or 22nd. Um, but he that was the first I'd heard of that. He mentioned it on that show. I, I mean, I, I kind of heard some banter about Lou Elizondo saying, which also John Ramirez mentioned, but even before that, you know, take take a couple years off, five years or something, because not much is going to happen. But I, I think one thing that has become clear to me is that it's not up to us. It's not up to any government to initiate this disclosure process or the actual event itself, the singularity that happens between past humans and future humans. It's it's entirely their game. It's entirely up to to them. Um, but I think it's gotten to the point where it, it is actually happening, which is amazing to even say that is a real possibility. Um, I don't have any insider information. I don't know anything uh, more than you know what I've come across in my research, uh, but it has been talked about in uh the intelligence community this time travel idea this future human idea and i do know that um things are different now i've been following this since i was a young child i became interested in this when i was eight so i i'd watched the ebb and flow and it obviously goes back much farther than 
whenever the hell I was eight years old, but there's been this clear ebb and flow where, oh, something's happening. No, nothing's happening. Oh, something's happening. And, and even over the last, you know, since 2012, when I started writing my first book, really paying a lot more attention, you see that same thing happen. Um, but this one feels different. And I think it is different. And I think something is happening and something is going to happen soon. But it's not because our government or uh, anyone in Congress had any sort of hearing that did anything. That's all just a dog and pony show. Um, but I, I think, yeah, I would say three to five years sounds legit. Um, where does 2027 fall in that five years from now? Um, I think, I honestly kind of think it'll be sooner just in my personal opinion, but yeah, you think there'll, what, there'll be some kind of revelation from the others then? <laughs> uh, I love that word. I actually, that's the title of my next book that I just finished writing about a week ago. That's with oh, my, that, uh, beta readers <laughs> right now. It's called revelation, the future human past. Um, but yeah, I do. I think it's. I think uh, there's probably a lot of reasons for it, um, but I do think it's their project. I think it's it's obviously always been their project, and we've been the primitive little monkey men dancing around trying to understand it. Um, but I think we're getting to the point where we can, as a global society, some of us more than others. I think a lot of people are going to struggle. A lot of major religions, especially Western religions, are going to struggle with reshaping their uh, perception of reality. There's going to be a lot of ontological shock in general, but uh, look at all of us in the UFO community. It's going to be easy peasy, mac and cheesy for us. We, we're, we want it. Bring, bring us that shift in our perception of reality because we've been told this understanding of this reality has been wrong for 75 who knows how long people have been told this isn't even real uh now we know it's real again air quotes there um but yeah i, th I think a lot of people will actually be able to embrace it pretty easily and will enjoy uh that shift in in the the reality that that we're a part of yeah it's, it's quite interesting to think like um the actual acceptance from you know the human population all around the world of this kind of extra layer of reality that we didn't understand before, and you know the fact that there might might may actually be visitation, that in in, its, in of itself could actually kind of accelerate the progression towards things like you know time travel technology and whatnot. It's like when you realise it's definitely possible, you go, oh, we better get to work on that then, sort of thing. Do you think there could be an element to that as well? Yeah, I think it already exists. I've had a number of hedge fund managers and futurists and people that develop cutting edge technology reach out to me. Like I'm a, a biological anthropologist that knows jack all about anything like that. But they're like, well, what, what's the future? I don't know. Read a book about UFOs. Figure it out yourself. I'm not, <laughs> I don't have insider information that's going to help develop a a damn UFO. We've already been doing that for 70 years. Go talk to those guys, you know, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it's there. There's undoubtedly going to be some sort of shift in, uh, economics in patents, technology. Uh, if we reach a point, uh, my friend Hussein Ali Agrama calls it the, the future 
technological singularity or future human technological singularity, something like that, where if we do have full broad knowledge of this relationship with future humans uh, and information can move freely, we enter an entirely new stage of human evolution, uh, both physical, moral, consciousness, and technological, where we don't really have that same slope process of building on what came before we reach a point where it is essentially a singularity it's this amalgamation of all knowledge from the past and future in that point talk about an acceleration to go back to what we we're talking about at the top of the show how much more accelerating can you get than all knowledge from the future being instantly available to you you don't look you don't google stuff from the past anymore you google things from all points in human time that's bound to speed things up a little bit. Yeah, that would be pretty intense, wouldn't it? The future Google. Future Google. That's something we should invent, actually. Maybe I'll talk to the hedge fund managers about that. <laughs> F- a future, future Google search engine. Yeah. I, I mean, it's funny. You, uh, my, my next question was, um, uh, do you've sort of established yourself as the, the, the go-to guy, you know, for this you know, extra tempestual side of the topic. I wondered, you'd, you'd mentioned just now about, you know, hedge fund managers and things reaching out to you. Has there been any interest in your work formally or informally from the intelligence community, the military, or the government? Um, yes. Yes, there has been. But again, they're not asking me to like design things for them. Um, it's more of a... Uh, conceptual sort of thing um my my role in this is is really just theory you know a lot of things start with theory and evidence is scant at least in strict scientific terms but there is a lot of observational data and a lot of circumstantial evidence that can help inform us about what has been going on is going on and will be going on and i think that is of more interest to those particular parties is the what what's happening now and will happen if this is accurate um but uh in the same way i don't have knowledge of how to make ufo i also don't have a crystal ball so i can't predict what the future is going to be like however the past does inform the future and if you can identify patterns and things uh, which was the big impetus for writing this last book was to just look for patterns across different contact cases and and see what emerges and that can inform all of us um but i think there are people who have a stake in the unfolding of the disclosure process that are interested in trying to learn more about the things they've overlooked for a lot longer than they should have mm. So would you be open to kind of working with uh, a group like Arrow or something like that in, within the U.S. government at the moment to sort of be a consultant or something on the, you know, from the extra tempestual side of things? Or is that something Who, you're perhaps already doing? Who's Arrow? Uh, Arrow, it might be my accent. It's the um, the new UAP uh, office. It was oh, up to, God, up they to, have a new acronym? Uh, yeah. I they've, cannot they've, keep up with all their goddamn uh, acronyms. At least it's better than AOIMSG. So we're currently it's with... It's not. Um, None of them are better than <laughs> any of them. I'm so sick of the acronyms. You know, no, I wouldn't. 
until they fix their acronym problem, I'm not going to work with anybody. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But it is a little ridiculous. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I mean, how much do I really have to offer? I, I don't have a direct line of communication with them, the others, that's going to give me any information. And, and they can do that themselves. Um, and, and like I said, too, I think a lot of these agencies are, are really just a front. I, th I think I used the term dog and pony show. I've always been horrible at mixed metaphors and bastardizing very simple phrases. So I don't even know if that's the right one. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think I, I didn't even watch it, but the reaction was exactly what I thought it would be to all of these congressional hearings. They're accomplishing nothing, and I don't think they're trying to. I don't think that's the point of them. Um, I think it's more to legitimize the reality of this and to get more people thinking about it and talking about it. And, and even though as a global culture, we've sort of ignored this more than I thought people would um, if they knew that UFOs were real and, and a higher intelligence is real. It's, it still doesn't really surprise me that much. But for those that are paying attention or are part of whatever collective consciousness may exist around this, then I think it is fruitful as, as far as getting people to open their eyes and minds to what's going on. But as far as getting something out of one of these groups, uh, I think it's completely pointless. Well, we shall see how it all unfolds over the course of the next couple of years, eh? But um, just before we we finish up, have you got any uh, timeline as to when your new book is going to be available? Pretty soon, actually. Yeah, it's it's different than the others. I think a lot of people in the UFO community will enjoy it because it focuses on a couple of very prominent themes that have been discussed over the last three to five years. Um, it's still based around this time travel extra model idea, but it's a, a satirical time travel science fiction novel, um, which is a bit different than the first two. It's fundamentally different than the first two. But uh, it is still... So the idea was that I wanted to have like kind of a hard science dense book, uh, one that's more... It looks at more of the, the phenomenon itself, the UFO phenomenon, and then one that's much more readable and palatable that still ties in these same ideas, but without a bunch of references to scientific papers and articles and things like that. So it, it it's a part of the whole process. It's a part of the whole explanation of this idea and a lot of ideas related to the UFO phenomenon, but done in a very different way than the other two. Um, but to answer your question, it should be out hopefully by March or April. Um, things are, are moving quite quite fast with this one. Excellent. I look forward to that. It'll be another one for me, my collection. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah, I look that, forward to discussing it too, because like I said, it's it's quite a bit different. I, I wonder how can you even discuss novels and podcasts or would you just be giving away the plot line the whole time? <laughs> That's a good point. I suppose you could just talk about the overall concepts without any spoilers, if there's a way to do that. Well, uh, <laughs> is it going to be a bit tricky to do that? I don't know. I guess I hadn't really thought about it either. I'm going to have to have a think on that over the next couple months. I'm sure there's a way. Well, we'll give it a good go. I'd love to get you back on when that's out down the line to uh, to discuss it, if we can figure out how to do it without ruining the plot. Yeah, we've got time. I think we can do it. We'll, we'll, 
we'll both think about it and we'll figure something out by April or May. How about that? All right. <laughs> Sounds good, man. So, yeah, that's about all we've got time for. So I'd just like to say uh, a huge thank you for uh, joining me. I'm sure the listeners will, will really get a lot from this. So thank you very much. Absolutely. It's great talking to you. Enjoy your show. Thank you, man. And uh, I'll, I'll leave uh, links in the show description as to where folks can find you on Twitter and check out your work as well. Uh, thanks again. All right, take care. UFO Thinker Podcast.